0: In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, Halloween is coming up, so my usual question, are you going to be eating candy for dinner? Eating candy for dinner sometimes sounds like a good idea, but then comes the stomach aches, and the toothaches, and the lethargy. The truth is, we are pulled about through the world by our loves, and what we love isn't always good for us, or even if it has some goodness to it, like candy. It needs to be in the right place, in the right order. This is what the doctors of the church are talking about when they say that sin is essentially disordered love. I once heard an interview with a man who had a deadly allergy to shellfish, but he loved shellfish. So a couple times a year, he'd grab an EpiPen, head of the Red Lobster, and basically try to beat the clock on his throat closing up. It sounds kind of nuts, but honestly, I can relate. Our gospel text this evening contains words that are spoken nearly every week in the liturgy, Christ's summary of the law. It's one of those things that becomes so familiar to us as to lose its punch. It's also one of those texts that can exacerbate the evangelical proclivity toward nail biting introspection. How could I possibly know when I've loved my neighbor as myself, let alone loved God with my whole heart, soul, and mind? Having lived my whole life as a member in good standing of the Church of the Anxious Saints, I must confess that I still process these words of Jesus in exactly this way. And like any good anxiety disorder, it can stir you up into frenetic action for a time. But after a while, it numbs you to the whole situation and you're still looking over your shoulder, waiting for the shoe to drop, but you're sort of falling asleep to it at the same time. Before we get too much further, I want to remind us that the gospel message is that God in Jesus Christ has drawn near to us as love. He has sent out his invitation and has himself entered into the vineyard, We cannot afford to go into a discussion of how to keep this greatest commandment all the while picturing God as a distant, most likely angry Father who is just waiting for an opportunity to slam us. That, in fact, is why the Church has left the Gospel text as it is in the lectionary for years. The great commandment and the great question, who is the Messiah, that leads us to the answer of the Gospel's injunction to trust. So again I say to you, when God looks at you, He sees you as the Beloved. Here are a few lines from his love poem to you. You have stolen my heart, my sister, my bride. You have stolen my heart with one glance of your eyes, with one jewel of your necklace. How delightful is your love, my sister, my bride. How much more pleasing is your love than wine and the fragrance of your perfume more than any spice. Your lips drop sweetness as the honeycomb, my bride. Milk and honey are under your tongue. The fragrance of your garments is like the fragrance of Lebanon. You are a garden locked up, my sister, my bride. You are a spring enclosed, a sealed fountain. Your plants are an orchard of pomegranates with choice fruits, with henna and nard, nard and saffron, calamus and cinnamon, and with every kind of incense tree, with myrrh and aloes and all the finest spices. You are a garden fountain, a well of water streaming down from Lebanon. With that love song echoing in our minds, I'd like us now to consider the set of finger paints that is theology. All nice and neat in their separate containers, each color hermetically sealed off. But finger paints are not made to stay that way. Often we treat our theology as if it were though. Over here we have the gospel message, over there we have moral theology with all the do's and don'ts. And this evening I'd like to invite you to make a mess with me. Christian moral theology has specific things to say about human behavior. The Ten Commandments, the Sermon on the Mount, the New Testament epistles, a variety of gospel passages in which Jesus lays out some fairly steep terrain for his followers, all speak to human behavior. The entirety of the moral life, Jesus tells us here, is summed up in these two commandments, to love the Lord your God and to love your neighbor, which means in the most basic way. Moral theology has nothing whatsoever to do with banishing desire, Quite the opposite. It's all about increasing desire and love and pointing it in the right direction. I'd like to make just a few observations about the language here before we turn to thinking about how we can go about putting these commands into practice. First of all, love. Love is, as the poet philosophers known as DC Talk so aptly put it, a verb. Jesus isn't telling us to have warm feelings toward God and our neighbor. In fact, as he tells us in John's Gospel, to love is to give up your life for your friends. Love is embodied. It has action. And I think here is where a lot of us feel close to being knocked out by a one-two punch. We've continued to think of moral theology as this sort of embarrassing, harassing obligation, while at the same time our culture's concept of love has been reduced to niceness and tolerance. But the moral life... The life of discipleship is not some nasty obligation in the same way that not eating candy for every meal isn't some horrible obligation. Of course, eating a well-balanced diet brings you to a place of thriving and freedom. Jesus didn't come in the flesh and suffer death on the cross in order to pull off a bait-and-switch. Ha! I told you it would be good to follow me, but really it's misery! No. The devil is the most miserable of all creatures and the only thing he can think to do with his misery is to convince you to not love God and to not love your neighbor, and so join him in the misery that is self-centered existence. Satan says, Oh, you poor thing, you must be starving. Grab a hungry man or a candy bar out of the freezer and heat it up. In our ignorant hunger, we'll do it. But I'm telling you, God has rented out a Michelin star restaurant and there's an open bar. Love is expressed in words and actions that flow out of desire. We're not called to love some distant, flaky God who may or may not feel like taking us to the movies on Friday. We're called to love the Lord. Jesus is linking us here to the God of Israel, the God who makes covenants, you know, marital promises with his people. Do you see the gospel here? Love the Lord, the creator of all that is and the God of the covenants, your God. He's already yours. You're not going to love him into being yours. He's already given himself to you in love. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind, with all of you, with the stomach, with your guts. This is the first and great commandment, meaning you can't skip past this one and go right to loving your neighbor. This is one of the ways in which culturally we're going to stick out like sore thumbs. Our culture has all sorts of ideas about how we should love our neighbors. Some of them may be good and true. Some of them may be destructive. But either way, neighbor love must be rooted in love for God. Notice the religious men testing Jesus didn't ask for the two greatest commandments, but Jesus isn't about to leave them lying to themselves that they have fulfilled the law. There's a second commandment that is like the first, love your neighbor as yourself. Love your neighbor, not love those who are like you. Not even love the poor or people in the third world or the citizens of Puerto Rico. Love the person who is stuck in your way. Neighbor love, of course, entails working toward justice on a social and systematic scale, but only because it is rooted in love for a person, the person in front of you. This neighbor love also involves so much more than just warm feelings, nor is it a toothless kindness. For our neighbors outside the church, we love with a profligate generosity, all the while bearing witness to the kingdom of God, drawn near in Christ. To our neighbors inside the church, We forgive with a radical selflessness, and we speak the truth in love. As Jesus would have been very familiar with, the passage in Leviticus that he's quoting about loving your neighbor as yourself follows right on the heels of what that love sometimes looks like. It says, You shall rebuke your neighbor frankly, so you will not share in their guilt. How are we to go about being people who love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, and mind, and who love our neighbors as ourselves? First, we must be people indwelt by the Spirit. One of the most magnetizing things about Jesus' earthly ministry is the way he is able in every single moment to attend in love to his Father and thereby be present in love to whatever human person was in his path. Jesus, of course, is God. That's what he's getting at in the second half of our text, that David's son is David's Lord, who sits at the right hand of God Almighty, in the deity-only section of the bleachers. But he is also the Spirit-filled man, In baptism we are given the Spirit, we are brought into the death of Christ that we might live along with Him, and now we are living His life. We must press into reality. God has sought us out in love not because of good things we've done, but simply out of His immense mercy, grace, and goodness. But Spirit-filled people still have choices to make. As we've talked about since the very early days of our parish, our desires can be formed. They can be pointed in various directions. Our habits and our desires have a circular relationship. We make habits of doing things we desire and we grow in our desire through habitual action. If you want coffee every morning, you'll have it. If you have coffee every morning, you'll want it. The hidden genius of Jesus' answer here to the Pharisees is that it's rooted in the liturgical practice of Israel. Jesus would have said this line every day in his morning prayers. It comes from the great Shema, Shema Yisrael, Adonai Eloheno, Adonai Ehud. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart. Just like drinking coffee, if you kneel and confess your sins, you're going to start craving absolution and living in the light, rather than hiding away in your guilt. If you open your hands to receive the peace of the Lord, you'll start to use your hands to build peace in the world toward your neighbors. If you develop a taste for the rich, sweet wine that you drink in communion with one another and God himself, you are going to grow in your desire for God and his kingdom. Friends, in this great commandment, Jesus is inviting us to a place of true flourishing and freedom. The mystery of life is that at the center of what it means to be human is to love and be loved. As we say so often here, God's greatest desire for all people is that we would live a life hidden with Christ in him, and he is love. Amen.